Boat Trader is America's largest boating marketplace with over 100,000 boats to choose from. We offer simple, comprehensive solutions for those looking to sell, find, and finance new or used boats. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why Midway USA offers super-fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. And as I was walking back to my kids in the blind to, to sort of move, you were walking up to us, and, and I remember, you know, you basically like had this sullen look on your face and like kind of hung your head low and like, man, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that in front of your kids. I was like, I don't care, it's no big deal. I wasn't going to try to ruin your hunt anyway. And, you know, from there you're like, oh, just come, just come hunt with me. And I was like, you sure? Because I've got two kids, I don't want it to ruin your hunt. And you're like, yeah, yeah, just come and hunt with me, we'll get you set up. So we drug the blinds back and we got set up. Welcome to the Foul Front Outdoors Waterfowl Podcast, where our goal is to recruit and educate new hunters while entertaining the rest of you. Without new hunters and the mentorship of those more seasoned, this passion as we know it faces an uncertain future. So get the word out, turn the volume up, and enjoy the show, because you're on the Foul Front. All right, well today on the show we've got uh, my good friend Dan Collins. Uh, Dan is a, uh, he is a waterfowl, migratory bird uh, biologist, and that uh, doesn't even begin to cover his uh, exact title um, or certifications. How are you doing today, Dan? I'm good, and yourself? I'm doing pretty good. Did I uh, completely uh, butcher um, your intro there? <laughs> no, no. I, I mean, if, if people need my true title, it's the Migratory Bird Coordinator for the Southwest Region of the Fish and Wildlife Service. And how long have you been, how long have you been with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service? Uh, 10 years. 10 years. And, uh, how did you, how'd you wind up, uh, working there? Uh, I was working on my PhD and I had wrapped up my field work and was writing my dissertation and I was prodded by a friend and fellow biologist to apply for a job with the service, and I got offered the job, and my wife and son at the time uh, moved to Portland, Oregon to start my career with the service. Awesome, awesome. Now, uh, where'd, you, where'd you go to school at? I uh, did my undergrad at a small school in North Carolina. I got a degree in biology and chemistry, and then I did my master's at uh, Sol Ross State University, which is out in Alpine, Texas, out in the Big Bend country, where I studied badgers in South Texas 
and then continued on for my doctorate at Stephen F. Austin and studied uh, wetlands and waterfowl. Awesome. Awesome. All right. So where have where has the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Services uh, all taken you? Uh, you know, it, that's a really good question. It's taken me to a lot of cool places. Um, I get to uh, work with basically all the states and provinces from Texas north into Canada and then west over to Alaska. Um, so I've been to through all those states, all those provinces from Saskatchewan west, um, Alaska, and I even was fortunate enough to be invited on a trip to Iceland. So right. I um, got to work with greater white-fronted geese over there. Awesome. Awesome. So over the, you know, the past decade, what are some of the, you know, what's some of the research, some of the projects that uh, you've been involved with? Um, so I've, uh, I've had a redhead project on the, the Texas coast just recently wrap up, um, working on model ducks on the Texas and Louisiana coast. Um, we're about to start a big northern pintail migration strategy study. Um, where we're going to mark birds in Arkansas, Louisiana, Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, California, and potentially some other key areas um, in the country to, to look at their their strategies moving north and south. Um, I've been involved in a couple couple greater right front of geese uh, projects, sandhill cranes, um, and cranes and and. The model duck and, and pintail projects are, are the three that are consuming the most of my time currently. When did you start hunting? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm sort of an outlier in that, with that regard. I didn't start hunting until, um, until my early 20s um, when, I, when I went back and, and started to pursue my master's degree. I, I grew up fishing. Um, both my parents grew up in, in Philadelphia, so, you know, they, they were never exposed to it and I sort of picked up fishing on my own. And then I happened to make a good friend who is, who is from Kentucky and, uh, we made a deal and the deal was, uh, he taught me how to shoot guns and hunt ducks and I would teach him how to rock climb. I've never, I never kept my part of the, the deal, but he's okay with that since he, um, he sort of got me fired up about ducks and, and yeah. wetland conservation. Oh, rock climbing, huh? Yeah, I picked that up when I was in North Carolina, so uh, I guess a jack-of-all-trades, a master of none. <laughs> that's uh, that's one, you know, I've always had, I've had buddies say, hey, come, you want to come climbing with us? Want to come bouldering with us? Or, and I would just kind of ask him, like, okay, what, we're going to go climb up stuff, and, and I'm going to have to you know, trust your knots and these like little carabiner hook things that you're <laughs> screwing into a wall. And I said, yeah, and yeah. I said, dude, I've seen you like one too many nights, um, <laughs> drinking a few too many. I don't know. I don't trust you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There, there is that, that trust factor in, in that activity. So yeah. Oh, that's good. So, all right. Um, should we, Talk a little bit about how how we met. I'd like to hear it from from your angle for sure, and then maybe I'd <laughs> tell it from mine. Sure. Uh, so I, I think I should just start. You know, it was what two two years ago. 
Was it two or three years ago? Yeah, yeah, it's hard to tell. Two or three years ago, it doesn't yeah, matter. Right. A couple years anyway. And, um, you know, so I've got a son who is getting of age to, to uh, that he's interested and I want to keep that interest. So I, I told my wife, I said, hey, I, I think I need to get get Daniel out and take him hunting with me. And we had just gotten um, some guns from my father-in-law. He uh, handed down a 55-year-old 410 side-by-side uh, to Daniel. So it was a perfect opportunity for him to, to go out and, and shoot at things with with me. So we made a weekend trip of it. And my, my middle daughter tagged along and we went down Saturday morning and and sort of found our camping spot and went out and we were hunting and I use that term loosely for the Saturday afternoon. It was really just for me to kind of get an idea of where I wanted to set up for the morning. And um, so we were out and we got dirty and went back and went into town, got some McDonald's and came back, made some s'mores and went to bed and then woke up and, and uh, got everybody ready. It was a little chilly. Um, and then we were walking out to, to where I had left the blinds. And uh, my experience in Texas was if you got shined on, you know, there was somebody set up. And and uh, I was like, okay, there's somebody, there's somebody shining a light. That's where they're set up. So I just told the kids, let's just keep walking to our, to our blinds and, you know, we won't bother them. And then uh, you approached us and, and started to, to uh, ask some, some at the time, what I took as pointed questions of, you know, um, this is where I'm hunting. Where are you hunting? And I don't want you to uh, to ruin my hunt on me. And I think I said to you, as I understand, I'm, I'll just, you know, I'll move further down the bank, and and uh, we'll we'll make a go of it somewhere else. And because I think you saw my uh, you saw my blinds. I just left them out. I actually, I didn't. Um, I, I, I oh, hadn't okay. seen your blinds. I knew right where I was going to go. Um, yeah. yeah, okay, go c- continue. Yeah, so so we did, you know, you and I, we just parted ways, and, you know, you were hunting, you had your spot set up, and, and I was going to get my spot set up with my kids, and I sort of left my kids near the blind, and I was like, you know, just stay here. I'm going to go look over, because I think you, you tried to point me in a couple directions. You know, there were some what you called uh, flooded timber, and but my daughter didn't have waders. Um, she was just sort of in, in rain gear and, and a couple uh, – another area. Anyway, I saw I was just sort of wandering around trying to find a spot to to uh, to set up. And, and as I was walking back to my kids in the blind to, to sort of move, you were walking up to us, and, and I remember – you know, you basically like had this sullen look on your face and like kind of hung your head low and like, man, I'm sorry. I should have done that in front of your kids. I was like, I don't care. It's no big deal. I wasn't going to try to ruin your hunt anyway. And, you know, from there you're like, oh, just come, just come hunt with me. And I was like, you sure? Because I've got two kids. I don't want it to ruin your hunt. And you're like, yeah, yeah, just come and hunt with me. We'll get you set up. So we drug the blinds back and we got set up. And, you know, I think... I think somehow Daniel wound up on your side. Yeah. <laughs> or next to you. And uh, so, you know, it was a little slow in the, at first, and he started to talk. And then, you know, as the as the morning progressed and, you know, we the small talk of questions back and forth, you know, like, where are you from? On, what do you do? That Those sorts of things, you know. That friendship sort of developed from that point on. 
Yeah, yeah. I and from my you know angle, pretty much every hunter that I had run into that season was like really aggressive, um, and would you know set up two or three hundred yards away from me and and my buddies. And I was actually out there all by myself, just me and my my you know quarter half of a duck dog, um, and. I remember when I first talked to you, I saw somebody like they were behind you, but I didn't really like pay attention. Um, and you said, oh, I got, you know, my kids with me. And I was thinking, oh, they're like older kids. And then uh, as you got to walking away, I saw, you know, these two little kids walking away from me and like you kind of like looking for. And I was like, I just was like, wait, 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 whoa, whoa, like something just clicked there for me. And I was like, we're the only people on this lake. Um, why would I, why would I, you know make you walk an extra two or 300 yards down when I've got the decoys already set up and in a, like a good spot that I had scouted. And it was just kind of, you know, like one of those things where it was like, I had a realization moment of like what it's actually about. And, uh, one of like the more pivotal moments of my, I would say my, my hunting experiences so far. So. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a good experience. You know, my, you know, Daniel still talks about that, um, that, morning that he shot a limit yeah yeah i mean so that, that will and he's got you know he's got a memory like an elephant he does not forget i mean he still remembers when we were up in saskatchewan and he was three years old um so which is which is good you know and that's a memory for me too because you know as i get old and start to forget more things he'll 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 remind me of that hunt when yeah. we were down on Absolutely. And another thing too was, is that was a really awesome day for me as well, because, uh, I think you and me, most of the time we were just sitting out talking about birds and, uh, you know, um, Daniel was, you know, (laughs) he was taking those pop shots at the, uh, with his 410 and we were just, I think we were just having birds come in like every five or 10 minutes, they were just coming in real low. And, um, it, it was just a very enjoyable day to watch, you know, kids in the field. And, you know, I didn't, I wasn't, we weren't even thinking about having kids yet at that point. And it was kind of one of those things where it was like, oh yeah, this would be, this is going to be really nice someday. So this week's episode is brought to you by the following partners, Hunt Hickory Creek and new to Hunt Hickory Creek this year is their central Kansas lodge. And they run hunters from the end of October all the way through January. And they're situated right between Kavira and Cheyenne bottoms, which combined can hold hundreds of thousands of birds at a time. Now, these guys work their tails off to not only put you on birds, but to show you a great time. So don't take your chance on something shady or unknown. Come check out Chase and a few of his guides, Cody and Scotty, in our Facebook group. Pick their brains. And if you're going to hunt Kansas, hunt Hickory Creek. We're also brought to you by Dive Bomb Industries, the fastest growing, most affordable decoys on the market. With unmatched customer service, you can find them on Facebook, Instagram, or divebombindustries.com. You can also find Asher in our listeners group, and you can use the code FOULFRONT to get your 10% off. And get yourself into a large, effective, and affordable, and easy to set up spread. It takes about a minute to set out a dozen. It takes up no space in the garage or truck. So, go get yourself twice the decoys with half the price and none of the hassle at Dive Bomb Industries. Now, with dove season approaching us, and teal season, remember that they too are migratory game birds. Federal laws apply in all 50 states, and that includes gifting and tagging laws. Make sure to keep your birds separated and or tagged when transporting or storing them with other hunters' birds. This includes from field to home as well. 
Gifting in the field, although commonly done, is never legal under 50 CFR 2040, and it must be done at the donor or donee's personal abode. For other helpful hints and tips, check them out on Facebook or under ToeTags LLC on their website at ToeTagsLLC.com. Have fun, be safe, and keep it legal. We're also brought to you by Athlon Optics, which produces some of the finest shooting scopes and binoculars on the market. Their ED glass is top-notch and rivals the glass of binos three or four times their price. You'll be able to pick a goose out in a depression from half a mile away with these things. They're tough, sturdy, and then this is where Athlon Optics goes above and beyond with a lifetime warranty. This thing is, which is pretty critical for a waterfowl hunter, so head on over to Athlon Optics and get a top-of-the-line binocular system for the season at a fraction of the price and a no-worries guarantee. FreelanceHuntStats.com. I have to tell you, I'm really excited to start uh, using the Freelance Hunt Stats system this year. So if you've never logged your hunts in the past, or I think it's something that you should really start doing this season, on FreelanceHuntStats.com. Not only can you look back and remember past hunts, but you can also use it to help you learn and improve with your future hunting successes. So don't forget to set up your account and start logging uh, this season. We're also brought to you by Duck Nuts. That's D-U-K-N-U-T-Z. Now, I've been fighting decoy rigging systems since I started. Wrapping, coiling, even Texas rigs. Talk about a pain in the butt. Now, I work hard, but at the end of the morning, it's time to go home. And Duck Nuts allows you to rig your decoys uh, so that all you got to do is throw them in the bag. And with their friction system, it's too easy to just pull the line and pack up or throw them out. It also allows you to adjust for depth. So if you're tired of fighting decoy rigs, head on over to ducknuts.com and use your 10% off foul front discount code. Also brought to you by Gypsum Creek Retrievers, which is a full-service gun dog training facility in the heart of the Midwest. And they look to build eager, confident, and reliable field companions through a unique approach that you won't find at many other places. So go check out Gypsum Creek Retrievers on Facebook or Instagram, or you can hit up Evan, the owner in our Facebook group. We're also brought to you by DuckTech. Increase your odds of success in the blind this year with the DuckTech mobile app. Three-time world champion duck caller Barney Califf teaches you how to make the most important sounds, what they mean to a duck, and when to use them. DuckTech is available to download in the App Store and Google Play. So with the season approaching, get the app today so you can put more ducks on the strap tomorrow. And uh, we're also brought to you by SRB Field Rests. No matter what where or how you hunt, SRB Field Rest will keep your shotgun, rifle, bow, or crossbow clean, safe, and ready in the field or on the range. Waterfowl hunters in the dry or muddy fields. Turkey or predator hunters in the pop-up blinds. Hey, if you're hunting deer, elk, or bear, or any other big game, uh, hunting in box blinds, they've got you covered. They even have rests for bow fishermen. So head on over to srbfieldrests.com and use your foul front discount code to get 10% off. Yeah, yeah, your daughter will be like my daughter falling asleep on your chest. And <laughs> you, you, all you'll get to do is watch people shoot birds. Yeah, for sure, for sure. <laughs> oh, yeah, but that was, a, that was a good day. And then you, you helped me, you helped talk me on some turkeys up in the, uh, the National Forest up around there too that one time, so... Yep. We just kind of kept in contact, and I, we just, I don't know, I I pick your brain every now and then about something, uh, for sure. And uh, Yeah, I actually got on your website today, and I, I was, uh, you know, I was impressed with, with all the different folks that you've had on, on the podcast, so you're oh, definitely getting a lot of good information out there. Yeah, yeah, I'm, tr- I'm trying to make it as educational and also, you know, entertaining as, as possible, and you know, I've got my limitations as a as an entertainer, perhaps, or a public speaker, or whatever I want to, you know, title I want to claim, podcaster. 
Um, but, uh, <laughs> I, you know, it's fun to, you know, just keep plugging away and, you know, you get some, you get some negative comments, but then, you know, all that gets washed away with one person being like, dude, thank you very much for this episode. It was awesome. You know, whatever, that, you know, that, that all makes it worth it at least. Sure. It's easy to hide behind a computer and offer up comments. Oh, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> For sure. So, well, uh, should we get into the to the beef of the episode here? Sure. Yeah. Let's let's go for it. All right. Uh, I guess we could probably title this. Uh, you know, this episode maybe something migration, like understanding the migration. Um, is I think would be a good uh, way to do that, and so I, I think we want to you know cover. The migration, maybe in a what's the best way to do it? Is it in a time oriented fashion or is it in a um, you know by species thing? I don't I don't know. Well, I think I think the first thing to 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 talk about is there are a variety of different migration strategies um, in birds in general. So you you can have everything from residents. And, and that sounds exactly what it is, is, you know, birds go through their annual cycle in one general area. Um, and then you have, you know, full obligate migrants where, you know, there is a cue that they pick up on, whether it's photo period, limited, you know, resources becoming limited or what have you, you know, they start to, to head south no matter what. And then you can, and then everywhere in between those two sort of, pinpoints you, you there's a varying degree you know i have some birds that will be short distant migrants or some birds that will be long distant migrants um you know and i think what you're getting at is like you know what what ducks migrate first and you know the teal and that that's the reason why we have these special teal seasons is because it was determined that they are available to the gun um you know, disproportionately during the migration rather than over the, the, uh, overwintering period. Um, and then, you know, you have your bigger ducks start to, to filter down the, 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 the flyway, so to speak, um, you know, behind them and, you know, like pintail, they typically, they're pretty early migrants in both directions. Um, the interesting thing about teal is, you know, you have bluing that, you know, bluing teal, they, they, they blow through, you know, August, September and can go all the way down to, um, South America to overwinter. And then, you know, they, they sort of, they can be late in their migration and be one of the last ones back on the breeding grounds. Right. So they, their when their window of actually producing a clutch is, is a lot shorter than, than we think. Now, Granted, those birds that might just go into Mexico or, you know, northern Central America or just stay farther south in, in the States, um, you know, obviously they're, they're hedging their bets that only going so far will get them back to the breeding grounds earlier. So you have to think, uh, you have to think of migration from a duck's perspective where, you know, they're, they're probably only going to go as far as they need to go. Um, you know, as, as those resources that, allow them to do the things and survive everything that's thrown at them during the overwintering period is going to determine how far they migrate. So, you know, 
uh, you know, you and I sort of threw around weather or climate change or, or however you want to characterize it, um, you know, that, that definitely can influence species where, you know, if it stays warm in the north, say North Dakota, South Dakota, and that corn or waste grain is available to those birds, they might be late in their migration. Um, or if they get an early freeze, they might be early. So those those sorts of things, those weather, those climatic conditions can drive certain species uh, to move. Um, you know, and I think as things become a little, little less predictable, migration potentially could be less predictable. I mean, for instance, just these aren't ducks, but, you know, I've got over 80 sandhill cranes marked with um, GPS units, and we marked birds here in New Mexico, and, you know, three winters after their marking, they no longer overwinter in New Mexico. They overwinter in western Colorado and um, up on the Green River in, near Bernal, Utah which you would think would be generally colder than, you know, here in New Mexico or, or parts south. So right. we're also seeing things, we're seeing those things in ducks as well. Yeah, I think it's uh, one interesting part to me at least is that, you know, everybody understands north-south migration. Um, but what's interesting to me is the, uh, I, you know, what drives a bird laterally, you know? What drives the bird? What laterally? You know, east west. What drives them that way? You know. Um, oh, um, yeah, that is a good question. My 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 initial guess would be weather. Yeah. The the, the drops and and rises rise in barometric pressure will will cue birds into what's gonna what's about to happen. Yeah. You know, we um, a colleague of mine um, had. Uh, Buckbird the sandpiper, which is a shorebird, marked, and they had a bird coming down through Nebraska about the time uh, the last hurricane. What was the hurricane that hit the Upper Texas coast? And it was headed straight towards it, and it veered. I mean, it made this this western movement, you know, into sort of the hill country area of Texas to to totally avoid that weather system. So. They might not have, um, you know, electronic GPS units, but there, there's something internal that a lot that cues them in environmentally to allow them to make those adjustments. Now, people talk a lot about how birds will use streams or mountain ranges or certain, you know, even highways um, <laughs> to handrail um, going north and south uh, from year to year. How much, uh, how much truth is there to that? I'd say there's a lot of truth. Um, just looking at track lines uh, on the birds that, that we have marked out of this office, and you can see distinct corridors or migration corridors uh, pop up. Uh, a lot of times it's river, it's riparian areas, these big river systems. Mm-hmm. Um, you, can see, you can definitely see where they're starting to funnel um, through those rivers. Or, um, you know, just uh, we have geese that, <clears throat> that come out of um, Russia, their, their Wrangell Island population of snow geese. And, you know, they come across the Bering Strait and they have a choice to make as they come through Alaska, whether to, to come down the coast or, you know, hit that front range and follow the front range down. And, and 
more often than not, they, they come down the coast, they overwinter on the, the Pacific coast, but some of them, what they do is what we call a round robin where like birds that overwinter in the central Valley, they'll start their migration, but their migration movement is South. So they'll come South and they'll hook, they'll hook a left and come over to the middle Rio Grande Valley of New Mexico. They'll sort of stage fuel up and then follow that front range back over to that island across the Bering Strait. Now that's not all of them, but some of them do do that round robin, as we call it. And we and we know that because of um, neck collars and getting uh, uh, observations from from birders and hunters that have seen these neck collars. Interesting. Interesting. So, what uh, you know? I guess the you know I always wonder. What drives a, a you know a mallard or a pintail to just pick up and fly two states in one night, or you know hop um, just a you know south maybe you know two hundred miles or something like that? What's the what's like the average pushes that you'll see um, in you know relocation? Um, average. I mean, I'd have to do a little pen to paper, but oh, sure. um, yeah, I mean. You know, a two-state movement or a thousand miles is is probably nothing given if it's the right weather conditions. And you know, you gotta you gotta think that as the weather as the weather changes, the the jet stream in parts of the country is is pushing the air south, right? So they can get up and hit that jet stream or, or that airflow, and they have to do less work. They have that tailwind behind them to allow them to make those big, large movements. And the same goes with with birds coming from the south, you know, as things warm up, you know, those those winds are coming from the south-southwest, which allows them to get over and up and, you know, head north. So they're, they're really queuing in on, on that sort of thing where they're using those big, big wind pushes to allow them to move big distances. So here in Kansas, if, if I'm getting, you know, uh, if there's a really good front that comes down all the way from South Dakota or North Dakota and that's where it starts and it starts pushing down that way. Um, you know, I always just imagined that I was getting, okay, Hey, I'm now I'm getting the birds, uh, from Nebraska, you know? Um, and then all the South Dakota birds pushed down. you know, I never imagined them pushing like more than like a state. Um, but it's not, uh, unrealistic or it's, it's totally within the realm of possibility that I could be in Kansas shooting at a bird that was in Canada two or three days ago. Yeah. That is, that's, yep, that is definitely within the realm of possibilities. Yeah. That, and that just, to me, that speaks a lot about how important I guess wintering grounds are, uh, or to have them at least for the, you know, uh, the hunter to have, you know, food and habitat available for these birds to try to stick it out a little bit around here so that we can get a, you know, a couple chances to, to shoot at them and, uh, whatnot. Cause it seems like, you know, uh, with, you know, everybody talking about how, you know, the Midwest and, you know, farming practices are keeping birds around longer or pushing them towards, you know, down the, um, you know, the central flyway there that, if those things weren't, you know, didn't exist or whatnot, we would be having birds just push overnight. You know, we'd never see a lot of birds, I feel like. But um, Well, I don't know, because, you know, the bottoms and yep. 
other places in Kansas, I, I I can't imagine why they wouldn't are wouldn't still be strong uh, strongholds for overwintering birds. You know, as long as oh, the yeah. bottoms weren't. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I guess you know that that whole theory. There's a lot of things that can go into that one. You know, with with the increased production of of grains, corn and soybeans and everything else that's out on the landscape. Sure, you could say there's a direct correlation between birds staying further north because of the production, but um, we also might not be riding 20-year highs of of population estimates either, where those grains are allowing birds to, to either, you know, not expend the energy they need to travel all the way south to Texas and, and parts beyond, or and, and it's allowing them to produce more birds on the breeding grounds. Right. So it's... I mean, it's it's messy, and everything in wildlife management isn't really cut, and it's not black and white, so to speak. Oh, sure. Yeah, I just, it's one of those things where everybody, you know, everyone always talks about, uh, you know, the money in the nesting grounds up there, and then uh, I think it was, I'm not sure if you're familiar with uh, Jerry Holden or not, but he was, I never really took too much stock, um, He's from, he works with Ducks Unlimited, but um, I never really realized how important it is to have uh, you know, conservation and habitat during the, in the wintering grounds, you know, the, or the, you know, the pit stops along the way for them. So. Oh yeah. So, I mean, well, so yeah, that, that, that comes back to, you know, back in the, the early days of waterfowl management, you know, that we, we as, as a conservation group identified the breeding grounds as the limiting factor, right? And that's where we put, uh, a lot of our time and efforts to learn about it, and 95% of all duck stamp sales go towards conservation in the, you know, the, that duck factory, so to speak, of the prairie potholes. Um, and and not that we didn't put any credence to overwintering. The early science was saying it was all breeding dependent, and how many birds you produced and. And whatnot, and then as you know, we started to shore up the things that were going on in the breeding grounds. Uh, focus started to attention. We started to focus our attention on those overwintering areas, and and really sort of dial in how important. You know, if, I don't know if Jerry ever, has ever talked about cross seasonal effects, um, but it's a matter of basically the better you can send a duck back to the breeding grounds, the better or the, the higher probability they are to be successful on the breeding grounds. So if you can send them back fat and happy, um, they're going to produce birds that are going to add to the population. I mean, makes perfect sense. <laughs> so, all right. So I think another thing that a, a lot of maybe, you know, neophyte hunters don't quite understand um, is Okay, we know in the fall the birds travel south and we know they're going down somewhere to hang out, you know, at the resorts or whatever it is that they're doing down there. And then they move back in the spring, uh, you know, move back north. You know, what are they doing um, during these different phases um, of, the, of the migration? Sure. So it's all going to be resource dependent. So they're leaving the breeding grounds because resources are becoming limited whether it's, you know, fields and wetlands being fed out or weather locking those resources up, ice and, and snow covering those resources. And as they migrate, um, 
So let's take the Central Flyway, for example, birds breeding in far northern Saskatchewan. And it makes a movement south to the Platte River in the rainwater basin area, you know, and they're going to stage there. You know, the, that, the corn is still available. There's still open water. And they're going to they're gonna refuel. And they're going to hang out until it either gets cold or, you know, something tells them to move south. And then they're going to... They're going to come down to, to Texas from Nebraska or Kansas. And during the fall, as they are moving, they're looking for those, those quick, fast, sort of candy bar type of resources. Um, and that's going to be in the form of seeds where they're providing those quick digestible carbohydrates to allow them to fuel up and uh, keep those fat stores where they need to be. But, as they get to that overwintering period and, you know, pair bonding starts to happen, feather molt really kicks in. So, so, you know, females are starting to, you know, produce, you know, potentially start that to get into that cycle of production. They're going to switch over to a more protein based diet, which is going to be, you know, your snails and your fairy shrimp and, you know, maybe some of your better, higher quality seeds to allow them to, you know, put on those good feathers to, to attract the best mate possible or to produce eggs um, and build up those fat stores so they can produce eggs. Uh, so it, it depends on what part of the annual cycle you're in, and that's going to drive what resource they're looking for. So, you know, they, they might hedge their bets and stay farther north, but those protein resources might not be there, so they might not actually, you know, be able to reproduce. Or, you know, if they come down to Texas, so to speak, they're looking for those high proteins. You know, feathers are really cost effective, cost expensive to make. So hmm. mallards, for example, the brighter your head, the better mate you're, you are able to attract. Now, can we see that? No, but female mallards can. So you want to be able to stock up on those snails and fairy shrimp to get the biggest, brightest, greenest head to attract the best mate. And that comes that I mean that's a whole nother aspect of, of sort of the the um, mating system of, of ducks, you know. We, we can't see those iridescence as well as the, the females and males can see it yeah. of one another. Yeah. Uh, and you know that was that kind of jogged my memory on something uh, as well that and if you ever if nobody anybody listening, if you have never had a chance to you know, spend some time in the field with a, uh, a biologist or something, uh, similar. Uh, it can be a very enlightening time. Uh, I remember we had a, a flock of green wing teal come in. I think it was, I can't remember if it was green wing teal or if it was, uh, widgeon, but you know, we, we shot and we had like, I think we took out, you know, all drakes on it. And you said, yeah, now that was a, that was a courting flight. And I was just thinking, what the heck's a courting flight? And then that kind of, you know, it's it's very interesting to me that there's these different types of, uh, you know, not behaviors, but uh, I don't. I guess what would you call classify that as different types of uh, um, groups? It's a it's a part of the court. It's a part of the mating system or courtship displays. Um, so yeah, I, I remember that. Vividly, they were green wing teal, and 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 really, we can take that day and break it down biologically. Because if you if you think back to to the birds that we shot, we were getting pairs of mallards 
mm-hmm. and and groups of teal, right? Right. So you had two species that were at different parts of their mating period, right? So you had pairs of mallards, so that pair bond had been formed because we were hunting, what was it, like mid to late January, so it was towards the end of the season. Yeah, yeah. And, and you had mallards that have, have had made that pair bond that male had that male and female had selected one another, they might have had a lone drake trying to, you know, push their way into that. But for the most part, that pair bond had been sealed where those courtship flights was one female green-winged teal and then four to five male uh, green-winged teal. And they were doing their hardest to impress this one female. Yeah. So, yeah, and and you know, sitting in the blind, I mean, there are days where I, I might not even pull the trigger because I'm, I'm watching that sort of stuff. And it's, I mean, that's interesting to me. And you can do that, you know, even if you're not a biologist and just sit there and observe, um, you know, it's, it's fun to see, you know, how things change throughout the year. And that really can influence how you hunt. Well, you know, uh, that's what if, I was just if thinking. You're hunting, yeah. If you're, if you're hunting mallards if, or if that's what you want to target or some of those bigger ducks, during the late season, you don't want to throw out this massive spread of decoys, right? You want to like make it look like there's just maybe one or two pairs in this area that are keeping to themselves and, you know, offering a spot for them to land or, you know, with green, with with teal courtship flights, you know, you just want to attract their attention. So you also don't need a, a, a big spread, but it's just the makeup of your spread. Like how many, like what configuration do you put them out in, you know? So that's right. definitely something to consider as you're as you're going out to, into the field for the day. Yeah, well, and that you know that's so interesting too because I think uh, I, I I wonder if you if you had a reaction or if you remember how I had my decoys set out because I had already had them set out before you guys joined me. Um, and what your initial thoughts are because we ended up moving them. I remember that. I do remember moving them, and I don't remember if it was based on my suggestion or just you and I saying, ah, oh, let's try it. Um, you know, I, I remember you didn't have a ton out. You had a couple spinning wings out set up for to get their attention. And I think what we did was we spread them out a little bit more, didn't we? Yeah. Well, and I know that because I always, I never have my spinning wing decoys within like 50 yards of where I'm hunting. I just try to try to get them. And I think we ended up closing off a, because they were coming across from the channel, I think, and flying real low, pretty much straight into us, and then they would bank off uh, to the left or the right of us, and so we just closed off one of those um, off to the side of us. I think it was kind of like a J or like kind of like a U. Uh, yeah. And they were, then they started putting down in front of us instead of just squirting off to either side of us. Yeah, I, I do remember that. I don't remember the configuration initially, but I remember changing them. I usually just have a, a dump spread, <laughs> so yeah, uh, kind of like a. Well, that—that's that, the thing. I think we've all probably been in the blind with the, with with somebody like, you know, they see one bird flare and it's like, oh, we need to change the decoys, and you know, that might not necessarily be what's making them flare. Right. So. Yeah. Yes. More than more than likely, it's the two guys sitting out of their blinds, uh, pointing out that it's a courtship flight. Or a bachelor flight or something. <laughs> yeah, probably so. <laughs> but okay, yeah. Back to uh, back to the migration. Um, what are some of the what's? 
Do you have any like pivotal like things that you when you found out about them when you like through your studies and learning you were just like wow um, that is an amazing display of nature or evolution or you know that's crazy that kind of thing. So so when it comes to migration strategies that that sort of is a, is a very new topic to me um, and one that I've gotten intensely interested in. Um, and it's, it's all through my work, uh, with Daniel Cranes, honestly. Um, so they, they sort of rev that engine, so to speak. And, and it's through the course of working with three, two of the three Western greater Daniel Crane populations and just seeing the difference in how they decide to migrate. Um, you know, we have, we have one population, um, called the lower Colorado River Valley population that exhibits sort of this, this um, skipping type of migration strategy where they don't really make big movements, you know, maybe a couple hundred mile movements north-south. Um, and then we have the Rocky Mountain population. They do this this hop where they make this, this jump from um, here in the middle Rio Grande Valley to the San Luis Valley in southern Colorado. And then from there they basically shotgun out across the landscape to their breeding areas. Um, so, so that's why I sort of jumped on, jumped on this Northern pintail migration strategy um, project uh, to, to be a part of it because, you know, this is sort of a segue to the harvest strategies and we don't need to go there just yet, but part of the model for the Northern pintail harvest strategy is the set, the, the mean latitude pintail settle. And, you know, we set that, we developed that mean latitude, you know, relatively long ago. I mean, mm-hmm. it's not that long ago, maybe 20 years ago. And, you know, as things change, has that mean latitude changed? So does, is that harvest strategy and is that capturing the, the, the true number of birds that we can harvest? Um, and then, you know, another project was the, uh, the, the project that I was a part of in Iceland where, you know, we had, there's this group of birds. They breed on the western, you know, the east side of Greenland, and they make a direct beeline to Iceland. And they stop there. They over they they stage in two parts of Iceland, the southwest and southeast, and the lowlands. And then from there, they decide on whether they want to go to Scotland or Ireland. And that's where they overwinter. And then they do that same thing going up. So, you know, as sort of the cranes, you know, were showing me what they were doing and I got exposed to the birds, you know, the Greenland greater white fronts. And now this pintail project, uh, it's just migration is just, is fascinating. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I was kind of wondering, you know, since you started in your, you know, your mid twenties, during your, you know, like when you were working on your masters and whatnot, and then um, you've kind of been in. I, I suppose you look through things through a much different lens than most hunters, uh, beings that you can you kind of understand, or you don't look at it as like a, oh hey, here comes the weather, now here comes the birds. It's more like, okay, so the weather is now you know forcing the birds to do this, and now they're going to probably be you're a little bit more you can kind of see the, the feet turning underneath the water as it were. Um, and I wonder, you know, how does that affect your hunting? Um, 
decisions? Um, so when I didn't have a young family, um, it, it, it didn't affect my decisions, um, too much because I had more time to go out and hunt. Sure. Um, but now that I have a young family, I definitely pick and choose the times of year I'll go hunt, just knowing my, my chances of being successful are higher, um, certain times of the year, or, you know, it might just be the only way I, I can get out. Um, it, the, my background influences my hunt in a different way, I think, than maybe some other people. I don't necessarily need to pull the trigger. I can, I, I love sitting in a marsh and listening to the marsh wake up, hearing wings over my head. Um, you know, and, and in New Mexico, you can't beat the sunrise and sunset around here, no. especially in the wintertime when there's some clouds. So that, to me, makes my hunt. Um, you know, and, and, and there have been studies done, and, and, you know, there are phases of, of hunting, and some of your, you know, some of the folks listening, you know, may be going through a different phase of, of what we call the hunting lifetime. You know, early on, it's sort of, you know, you want to pull the trigger as much as you can and you want that bag limit. And now not everybody gets out of that mentality, and that's okay. If that's what is enjoyed, that's, I mean, enjoy what you want. But a lot of times what happens is you go through that and then you get to a point in your life where, you know, you have young kids or you, you don't necessarily need to pull the trigger as much. And you go through that and then you sort of start to, you know, wean back towards, okay, I got my kids through and they're hunting and now I actually want to be a little more active and get out more and pull the trigger more. And, and then, you know, and then you kind of go back into this, well, now I have grandkids and, you know, it's just nice being out in the marsh or in the field with them. Um, so, you know, that, that, that has been studied, that human dimension side of, of I, hunting. So Yeah, and I got to see pretty much a good array of phases um, this last weekend uh, for the Kansas Teal opener. Uh, I went out with a, a, a friend of mine that I've met out uh, through, uh, actually, the podcast and whatnot. Um, he runs a, a YouTube channel uh, called Freelance Duck Hunting. His name's Elliot. And, um, you know, there was it was me, my buddy Austin, uh, Elliot, and his dad. And you can, you can just kind of look down the firing line, and you can see my buddy Austin who, like, has – he grew up hunting um, – in Missouri and has been out of the game for a while and you can just, you see hunger. Um, and then you see, you know, then I, I don't, I guess I don't know how to categorize myself. I still like, I like shooting limits just as much as the next guy, but I just get a great enjoyment out of, uh, seeing birds work. Um, and then you've got uh, a guy like Elliot who just kind of gets off on the getting people, uh, like his sons or his good friends out there and just being out there and then, you know, capturing birds on, on film and um, all that stuff. And then I look over there and I see the happiest guy in the marsh, um, and that's uh, his dad, um, you know, he's just sitting out there. I don't even know if he had shells in his gun. Uh, he's got his dog right next to him. You know, he's got his son right next to him and uh, just enjoying his coffee and, there ain't a place in the world he'd rather be. We couldn't even see a duck, and he'd probably he'd be a okay. So. Right? Yeah, I, I'm sure you had all the the entire spectrum out in the field for sure. <laughs> for sure. 
For certain. So, um, what what would you say? And this is just a um, a selfish question, I guess, for me. Um, what is the most interesting migration pattern like that you've come to observe or um, study? Like the one that really fascinates you. Um. It, it, it comes down to choice and seeing the inner specific choices made. Um, you know, you, the, I mean, honestly, the, the, the one that comes to mind is that snow goose, um, example I gave right. a little earlier yeah. where you have birds, you know, they, they, all the birds go to this one Island. It's called Wrangell Island and you can find it on Google earth. It's this, you know, small island in, in, in the Arctic. And, you know, that population hovers sort of between 150 to 200,000 birds, and they all sort of come down, you know, to the Pacific coast. And some, about 60% overwinter in the Puget Sound area, and then the, the rest in the Central Valley. The, the, the choice that some make to do that round robin, to come over to New, to New Mexico, and then they go up the front range back instead of just going straight back in a linear line um, along the, the Pacific coast um, is, is fascinating to me. Like why, why? Yeah. What's your when, hypothesis oh, on that? Right. Exactly. Like, was it your parents that taught you how to do that or, or, you know, or <laughs> was it some, you know, and, and birds are, birds can be phylopatric. They can be really, they, they, they come back to the same spot every year. So, you know, if, if it's a learned behavior, you're like, why, what made them choose to, to basically check out the front range of the other Rockies? Right. Sure. Sure, sure. So, well, I know one thing that, you know, the, the bird reports just came out or the population reports just came out. And, um, you know, I guess let's talk a little bit about that. Um, you know, first and foremost, before we even discuss anything, um, uh, relating to the, any sort of data, how do you, how do they go about getting all this stuff, you know? And, uh, what are some of the, you know, foibles of trying to count a bunch of birds out in the wild? Um, and what, what, you know, what are what are some of the specifics that we need to be looking at, um, in these, these numbers? Uh, that it's an estimate. So it's not, it's not exact. Um, so for, for waterfowl, um, to get a population abundance estimate, what we do is we survey the, um, breeding areas in May. And we call that the May, Breeding Population and Habitat Assessment Survey, or may BPOP. And we have pilot biologists who have strata that they cover. And the transects are about 200 miles long piece, and you have a pilot and an observer, and they fly these linear transects. And an eighth of a mile off the wingtips, they count every single wetland and duck that they see. 
Um, and then now, there are back that up real quick. So you say that okay? So they're in a plane and they're gonna they're uh-huh. gonna fly two hundred miles, uh, and they're basically covering a swath of uh, a half a mile wide. Uh, a quarter of a mile. A quarter of a mile wide. An eighth of, an eighth of a mile off each each side. Okay, and yeah, they're when they're counting. Are they are we taking pictures or are we doing just a? Um, so you got a little clicker up there, or what's he doing? It's, it's a voice recording. So what happens is they have they have the entire breeding grounds stratified with these transects. Okay. And we have survey crews, and the survey crews is the pilot and the observer, and some of the survey crews have have ground crews, and I'll get that in a second. But the pilot and the the, the observer, they fly these transects. And as they are flying, they basically, the pilot only records the ducks he or she is seeing. The observer is recording the, the type of wetland and the ducks that they're seeing. So, hypothetically, let's say we're going along a transect, the pilot and the observer are coming up on a wetland. The pilot is going to say, uh, he's going to speciate. So he'll say mallard, pear, and a spare. And then the observer will say, you know, mallard, three pair, three spare, right? So you have a total of how many ducks do you think? Well, 9, 10, 11, 12, 15? Like, is that what you're asking? Like, how many they just said? Yeah. So so on the, on the pilot side, he says pair and spare. That's actually four ducks. Okay. Because a spare is a, a male mallard, and the, the, uh, they did studies about this. If, they're, if there are mallards that are in groups of less than four, there's a female on a nest that they are attached to. So on the pilot side, it was four ducks. On the observer side, I said three pair, so that's six ducks, and three spare, so that's another six ducks. So that's 12 indicated birds. So, so you didn't be- necessarily see 12 birds, but you're saying that these it's, signs, this to me says 12 birds in, in this little place. Based on their biology, it's 12 indicated birds. Okay. Correct. And now, how, so, how high are these, are we flying here? They're 100 to 150 feet off the ground, so they're okay. really low. Okay. And that doesn't, uh, that, I mean, that usually, I would imagine, kicks the birds off. Uh, yeah, so they also studied that where um, as the plane flies over, if the birds are breeding or in a breeding status, they, they resettle back on that same wetland. And that's important because of the ground crews. So there is a subset of ground crews that are going and taking 18-mile um, segments of these aerial transects. And what they do is they go and they count all the wetlands on each side of the transect and all the birds that they see in the wetlands. And what happens is that it creates a visual correction factor because you got to imagine a pilot's not going to see every single duck on a wetland because they're also trying to fly a plane. Right. Right, and and the observer, depending on how 
trained they are, they might not see all the birds depending on the weather conditions and, and you know, which direction they're flying, east or west. Um, you know, sun might be in their eyes, so they might see it. So the ground crew, what they do is they come in, they're supposed to basically see all the birds, and then they, they apply these visual correction factors to the, the pilot and the observer. And that way, they can extrapolate out across the landscape once the pilots and observers are done with their aerial transects. So I imagine each one of these, every time they fly over a wetland and they, you know, do the count, does does that wetland get some sort of signature number or, um, you know, how do they double tag? You know, if you got people in the air talking about one wetland and people on the ground going to try to find this other wetland, how do we know? You know what I mean? Right. So in the air, they just they designate the the wetlands either natural or artificial. And then the ground crew um, comes along and we classify them as either type one, type three, type four, or type five, or a stream. Okay. Um, and and they can use and then they use that as a, a reference as a, uh, a correction factor as well for the observer who's recording all the the wetlands. Okay. Got ya. Got ya. Here here's a here's a question for you too. Okay. So at a, you know, 150 feet, I guess I was thinking that it was much higher, uh, but at 150 feet, um, when, a, you know, four or 500 birds pops up off of a, uh, a wetland or something like that unexpectedly, I don't know if that, if that is a, even a feasible case or something like that, but um, what do you do at that point? Because there's, you know, the observer, uh, you know, a bunch of birds pop up in his face and the pilot, you know, how do they estimate, okay, that's 200, that's 300 or, you know, I get a dozen, yeah. a dozen's easy, but, uh, maybe, you know, three or four dozen's <laughs> easy, but, uh, so yeah, that, I mean, we, we have, we have software programs that, that we use to, to train people up, but you, I mean, you would be surprised. So everybody's different on, on sort of how they, um, how they look at the, a flock of birds and scan through it um you know when it when it's when it's a big flock of birds like that pilots will always tell you to sort of segment everything out you know and just take groups of 10 and just go 10 20 30 or you know if it's really really big like when they do the um, greater white fronted goose survey up in um up in canada they i mean they they like slice them up by the thousands oh, um, because they have these big flocks that they're flying over so it, it, it all depends on the situation. So there are ways to sort of um, carpe, uh, just, you know, block them and, and estimate. And, you know, nine times out of ten, they're going to be super close to, to what's actually on the ground when some of the populations will do photo correction analysis. Uh-huh. So, I mean, those pilots are amazing. The, well, what they was... can see and what they do in the plane, because I'm, I'm getting ready to go up on, on a, a crane survey. Uh, it's just, you know, finding birds in chiseled fields and, and on wetlands. You know, it's amazing how birds will will, will, will hide, you know, to, to the plane eye. Yeah. Who are these guys? Who are these pilots? Where are they coming from? Um, uh, you know, where do these people um, pop out of the woodwork? Yeah, so, you know, back... Back as the uh, wars were were coming to an end, we had 
we, you know, the GI Bill um, kicked in. We had a more uh, rural, you know, base um, coming back from from the wars, and they had an interest. They, there was this hunting, you know, heritage that was in them, and and these guys learned how to fly during the wars. They went and got a degree, uh, a wildlife biology or a biology degree somewhere, and and parlayed it into a career flying planes, and and it it has. Um, we now have folks that um, sort of have done it the opposite way, where, where they get into school, they're going for wildlife biology, and then somehow they make a connection with flying. They like to fly, and then they find out that, that um, you know, there are these jobs called pilot biologists, and, and you know, they really get after it and get their, get their hours in, and, and they're very... Uh, very very employable because they can fly a plane and they can identify things from the air. So, um, yeah, it's it's a unique skill set for sure. How many um, of the population of biologists that you know, um, migratory or bird biologists, waterfowl biologists, what percentage of them, I guess I don't know if to ask, don't hunt or do hunt? Um, so like folks that are similar to me or just in general, I would just, I, I don't know. Like, uh, how many, is it more hunt, more hunt than not hunt? Um, you know, I would say, and, and this is sort of broad stroke, so I don't want to like or paint anybody into a corner, but I would say at the, at the federal agency level, I would say more people, do not hunt, then hunt. At the state agency level, I would say it's the opposite, where more people hunt than don't hunt. Interesting. Um, Interesting. And, and just because I said that they don't hunt doesn't mean they don't have an appreciation for, for it. it. Right. Of course. So, um, you, you know, just like just like those different uh, different phases of a hunter, we, you know, if you look at a bell-shaped curve – you know, just because, you know, 80% of the population, they might not be for or against hunting. They just don't understand it or have never been introduced or to it. So yeah. I would say, yeah, I would say the same thing for, you know, we definitely have that influence of the Discovery Channel and that Geo Channel in the fields today, for sure, where, you know, kids got that interest in wildlife, not because of where they grew up, but because of what they were seeing on the television. Right. You know, that's definitely the case, but they're not necessarily opposed to, to hunting as a management tool or, or an activity. Right. There's a, there's a kid out here listening right now that just heard you say um, pilot biologist or, you know, is imagining himself sitting in this plane counting ducks over the prairie pothole region. And what's the, what do you have to say to those guys and gals? Uh... I think, you know, honestly, the, the most important thing is to have your pilot's license and the required number of hours. I think we require 500 hours of, of solo flight time before you'll even be considered. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's, I would also say, I would also encourage them to learn how to fly drones. And I don't know if, I, I, me not being a pilot, I don't know if those, those two pilot license or, experiences are the same or if they're totally different because you know as the technology becomes better 
as the flight distance requirements um, by the FAA of, of drones um, changes, you know, I can see where we might turn to these unmanned um, vehicles to, to do some of that survey work sure. as opposed to having physical people up in the air um, because, yeah, just you know, can, Yeah, cost and resources and, you know, it only, only takes a, a truck, a drone, and a couple batteries, I guess, and a computer to maybe, you know, get that done. But Right. Yeah, that's uh, what would you say to uh, somebody that's considering a, you know, they're out, they love hunting and they want to, you know, they really, you know, have a passion for studying waterfowl and, you know, maybe they're in uh, high school right now and they're considering a, you know, wildlife biology degree or something like that um, just to be around birds more. What, what would you, you know, what would you caution anybody with or what words of encouragement would you give them? Uh, you know, no caution. Um, I, I would say have an open mind to, to different thoughts and views about, about hunting, uh, pick a school that that's got a good reputation, uh, with regards to their wildlife biology or, or natural resource program, whatever they, they've decided to call it. And then the biggest thing that I encourage the students that I interact with, um, especially at the undergrad level, maybe not the graduate level is to, Work as many seasonal jobs as you can because, um, you know, getting to know people in the field is just as valuable as getting to know the species you want to study. So inter- interact with other biologists and, and build your reputation as a hard worker and somebody who's willing to build, build fence, you know, and then go out on deer surveys or waterfowl surveys um, is, is definitely um in my mind, will help you attain that job you want a lot quicker than just getting the degree and then thinking that you should get hired. Right. Of course. Of course. That's a that's good um, advice for any any field, I think. <laughs> so, uh, continuing down, um, you know, talking about. Uh, the duck numbers and the waterfowl population numbers. Uh, what did you, you know, what, what, what's your, your 15 second observation on this year's, you know, numbers and results? Uh, you know, same as last year, we're riding, we're riding really strong population estimates. Um, you know, a couple concerns about some species, um, but nothing that's, that's not, um, detrimental to, to the populations yet. Um, so, you know, I think, I think that's one thing that a lot of us are concerned about is, you know, wh- when is the bottom going to crash out of these, these all time highs? Right. And then we're, we're sort of back into the seventies and eighties where we have restricted bags and, and it's been shown that bag limits really influence recruitment and retention of waterfowl hunters. Well, yeah. And, and so, you know, we we fight that right so yeah if you can only go out and kill three ducks um or harvest three ducks um people i guess there's a certain population you know, especially new people and new hunters like you just said for uh recruitment some people it's not going to be worth it for them uh but uh what what's the what's the thought on you know harvesting uh you know like bag limits affecting populations because i've you know, you always read there's, what is it, it, there's additive and then there's causative or something like that. I can't remember what this, 
uh, what specifically they're it's called. Additive and, yeah, additive and compensatory. Compensatory. That <laughs> there's a there's a two dollar word for you. Right. Um, <laughs> no wonder it escaped my my vocabulary. Um, but uh, what what is that? You know, because I do have some buddies that will you know. Oh, hey, that's a nice group of hens you got there. And uh, you know, I'll say, oh, well, you know, sure tried to identify that uh, Drake blue wing teal last weekend, but it escaped me. It eluded me. Yeah, um, you know, the different the, the the basic boil on the two the two down additive, or if you think about uh, populations in general, right? You have you have immigration and immigration, so you have you have individuals leaving and you have individuals coming. You have birth rates and you have death rates, and that's just a part of the natural population cycle of any species, right? Right. So, so in any given year, you know you're going to have a birth rate of X, death rate of, of Y, and, you know, it sort of balances out. Now, additive is your, your, your death rate is going to be much higher than your birth rate can keep up with adding new individuals to the population. So, the thought is, is if hunting is additive, it's contributing um, to that death rate and, and driving your, your population to, to a negative slope, so to speak. Um, so compensatory is, is the total opposite where you have the birth rate, death rate, and then hunting just sort of is compensatory where it's taking birds out that might have already been on that trajectory of dying in that year so you're you're, so you're, not you're killing dead. you're killing faded dead birds essentially correct that bird's number right. was coming up that year probably anyways and you just got in the way so right or or it's a bird like a juvenile male who hasn't actually contributed to the population yet so it hasn't been recruited into that breeding population mm. right so a juvenile male is not really important i mean honestly males in most in most populations really aren't important. It's the females that drive the, the dynamics. And that's why in certain populations you have that hen restriction. My wife is going to love that. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think most wives, girlfriends or, or others will, would, uh, will, would it will enjoy that. But I mean, you know, that, that's why that, that female or that hen restriction is in place because they drive the population. So the the whole uh, dead hens don't lay eggs argument is has some validity to it. Uh, yeah, to a point, right? So an adult female is gonna is is gonna be more important than that juvenile female because that juvenile female hasn't been recruited into the breeding population. She has the potential to be recruited into that breeding population, but she hasn't figured it out yet. Where that adult female has figured it out and potentially has laid a, has laid a, 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 a clutch of, uh, of eggs and, and produced, you know, they had, she had, you know, nest success and fledging success. And those birds are now have been put out into the population. Right. And that all comes down to fitness, right? So fitness is basically reproductive biology. All you need to be fit is one replacement, right? So, so if, you and your wife decide to have another baby. I'm not saying you are, and it happens to be a boy. You are a fit couple because you have re, re, you have replaced yourself. Gotcha. Understood. And for those listening, I have a daughter, and 
So you're saying that now we've both, now we're fit, we're basically keeping the status quo. Right. Got it. Right. Understood. Understood. So I guess to kind of tie up a little bit of all of this, um, I'd like to get into kind of the annual cycles that we were talking about. And correct me if I'm wrong here, but the way some of the ways that you were wording things earlier on in this conversation, it sounds like annual cycles are not necessarily tied to migration cycles. Uh, no, we we um, we 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 call them life history events. Okay. So if you think about it uh, from from that aspect, life um, history events. Okay. Yeah. So. Think about it, um, and it's a lot. It's a lot faster, right? I mean, it's just like a, a human, right? You, you're you're born. You're mm-hmm. you're you're a duckling, right? So that's your baby. That's your your life history of it, right? And then and then you you grow, right? And for ducks, it's yep. basically you come out of the egg. You follow your mom to a wetland, and you learn how to feed. Right, and as you feed, you start to put on your primary flight feathers. Right, and then you feed some more, and you get to be a flighted bird. Then your mom and your dad has already abandoned you, and then your mom abandons you, and then you got to figure it out. So you're basically a teenager, right? And you so you you find some other teenagers, and you figure, hey, let's go and party down south. And then you, you're able to fly and you pick up and you fly south. And then, you know, as you, as you, uh, age as a teenager, you start to become interested in the opposite sex. And that's when that courtship display starts to come in the, in, into the, into the mix and you start to put on your, your breeding plumage and you are trying to find, you know, that, that mate for the year. So for a mallard, what uh, what you know what age is this for them? Oh, it's in the first year. In the first year. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So so they are recruited into the breeding population. So they're considered a, a hatchier bird the season that they're born. So if they're born in June, July, August, they're considered a hatchier bird. Okay. And then until and then they reach January one, they are considered a second year or after hatch year bird, and they have been recruited into the breeding population, and they have the capability of breeding, of producing uh, a nest for the, the the following season. Okay. Now, what are some? Uh, and I know it's this is a, such a loaded question. How do I tell the difference between, you know, an old bird and a new bird? You know, um, yeah. So with with females, it'll be um, so if they're alive in your hand, it'll be feather quality, and then the the, the tried and true tale for ducks is to turn them over and pop the cloaca. Um, birds that have laid eggs for females will be a lot um, more open than juvenile females. Uh, and for for males, it, um, there will be a sheath or non-sheath reproductive parts. Okay. So and better quality. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. 
so the cloaca, as it were. Go look yeah. up some pictures of what a cloaca is if you didn't pay attention in seventh grade uh, biology. Uh, we're not going to get too into it here on this podcast, but uh, you're family friendly, right? Right, right. It's family friendly around here. That being said, uh, aren't ducks the most well hung species of uh, all waterfowl, or, or excuse me, of most of any species? I thought is what they said. Uh, proportionally, the ruddy duck is the the the, the uh, as you put it. <laughs> the old ruddy duck. Okay, got it. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Good. The old butterball of the waterfowl world. Good. Good deal. And actually, ruddy ducks is, are, are interesting. So most ducks go through a pre-basic and an alternate feather molt, right, where you have sort of the males, you know, they kind of get dingy during the summertime after they've bred, and then, you know, in the wintertime they come back into yeah. that breeding plumage. Ruddy ducks go through three molts instead of two. Okay. That's it. So they go each year. They they molt three times. Correct. Yep. Okay. Hey, here's another little pullover session, uh, basic set. Why do why why do birds molt? Uh, well, uh, feather wear. So they're replacing wear worn uh, feathers. Um, they're replacing flight feathers. And so for ducks, um, they go through that, that molt migration and they, they get to a spot and they drop all of their flight feathers and grow them, uh, all at the same time, uh, opposite of say like dove where they, where they only replace a single flight feather at a time. Uh, and then they replace or upgrade their, their breeding plumage to attract the the, the best mate possible. Right. And uh, I guess it would be a nice little pullover session too. Uh, when they're preening, um, you know, we always talk about, oh, they're out there loafing and, uh, and preening. Uh, what, what are they doing? And I know they're doing some maintenance yeah. on their feathers, but, you know, specifically, what is it? Yeah, they're putting them back in place. So if you were to look at a, at a, a feather, a primary feather, um, under a microscope, they have barbs. And those barbs allow them to put those feathers in, in, in a particular place. Okay. And they're putting them back in place. And they're also oiling their feathers to keep oh. them waterproof, essentially. So when, you, you know, if you've harvested a duck and, you know, if you, you're young and curious, you know, there's an oil gland on, on their rump that you can see if you, if you pluck your birds. Mm-hmm. Um, that's an oil gland that you know when when you see them reaching back towards their their rump. That's that's what they're they're getting. They're oiling their their uh, flight their feathers. Gotcha. Good to know. Okay, so uh, back so they all the birds have they're flying down south to South Padre Island for spring break to hang out for the first time. Uh, then then what happens? Yeah, you know they they um they're peacocking it right. Uh, they're they're looking for that mate that that they're trying to pair bond with. Um, and, you know, some ducks are, are successful and some aren't. Um, so, uh, you know, mallards are seasonally monogamous. Um, there is some, some extra pair copulation going on potentially, but for the most part, seasonally they're monogamous. Um, but as soon as that, 
female then flies back north with her mate. Um, as soon as she initiates a nest, the male abandons the, the female. What's, what's um, that degenerate off doing now? Uh, he's basically back recovering from that migration and the, the courtship and getting ready to, to do it all over again. Okay. Um, just kind of leaving it out to the, uh, to the, yeah, to the hens. Now, so is it one, like, so basically once that hen lays her eggs, um, she's kind of, she's on her own to do that stuff or do they like, is there any sort of teaming up in any of this or not? Uh, not with mallards, no, but. Canada geese, yes, they they um, they raise they raise young together. So yeah, it's a wide spectrum of whether they they abandon or or you know mate for life. Right, right. I, I didn't, you know, thinking as we were kind of planning this episode out, I was thinking to myself, oh yeah, we'll definitely need to cover the annual cycle of the mallard and. The Canada Goose as well, um, but it sounds like those things are podcast episodes all in themselves. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. You know, you were talking a little bit about um, the, you know, the migration patterns of, uh, oh, what did you just say it was? Um, the ruddy duck, right? With the, uh, you're talking about it's different, it has three molts. Um, yep. What other, you know... You know, you, you kind of told me, uh, you know, yeah, the mallards uh, and the Canada geese, sure, we can cover those life cycles. But I could hear it in your voice that uh, there was something, you know, something else that you said you'd, you know, you'd rather talk about, um, you know, a, a different species, just maybe due to interest or something uh, uh, of a similar nature. Oh, no, it wasn't, it wasn't, uh, so you got to, you know, mallards and, and Canada geese have been studied you know, to the nth degree. Right. Um, you know, I, I have more of an interest in, in those species that need a little bit more attention. Um, you know, and pintail being one, um, you know, we're riding these 20 year highs of just about every dabbling duck and diving duck population. And then there are pintails that are just struggling. And, you know, why is that? Um, and, and really, you know, we thought we had it figured out on the breeding grounds, but we really, we really, we really don't. We think it's cross-seasonal effects and, and potential changes on the wintering grounds that are really impacting these birds and not allowing them to produce the, the, uh, the young that, that other ducks like mallards or gadwall or shoveler or teal are, are producing in any, any given year, given the conditions on the breeding grounds. So, um, it's not to put, it's not to put mallards or Canada geese down. It's just, no, no. I find other species um, interesting, but that's coming from a biologist. Right. I know, I know, I know for hunters and, and waterfowlers, you know, greenheads and, and Canada geese seem to be the, the cream of the crop, you know, cause they're the, they're the most available and, and their numbers, um, they provide more opportunity. <laughs> yeah. I would, well, you know, in the, the last, this will be my sixth season that I've been, you know, seriously chasing birds. Um, I, I have probably shot more widgeon than any other bird. Um, in the, that, that stems all the way from down into Texas, New Mexico, up through Oklahoma, um, 
and uh, now Kansas. There's just what's what's that about? <laughs> uh, you know, wigeon is another species that that I am extremely interested in, and we don't know nearly enough about them. Um, I think, given your locations of where you're hunting, you, you're basically in sort of hot spots for wigeon. That's not going to be the case across the the entire country. Not not a ton of people get exposed to wigeon. Yeah, and to me, to to hear somebody be like, "Oh, I really want to get a wigeon," I'm thinking to myself, "Oh man, we we call off shots because it's all wigeon," <laughs> you know, right. um, and and not not to be. I don't know. That sounded maybe braggy, but it, it's um, or something. But um, yeah, I just we we have tons of widgeon, and I feel like it. It's uh, it's I hunt small ponds and like shorelines of you know decent sized man made lakes. Uh, I don't, you know, I'm not sure. Maybe my hunting strategies, you know, are more prone to widgeon or something like that. But I'm not sure. Well, you got to think of their foraging ecology. Um, what you just described to me was perfect for widgeon. So, uh, man-made lakes, depending on the size, are going to have a lot of submerged aquatic vegetation. Um, and then small ponds, I imagine, are going to go through a, a really good um, drying and wetting cycle, which you know creates a lot of green green vegetation. And widgeon are, are predominantly a vegetarian. They're looking for those those uh, vegetative structures like. Um, you know, buds off a coontail or, yeah. or, um, you know, like bulrush, you know, shoot the bulrush. Um, so you're, you're sort of hunting in the habitat they're, that they're looking for. Get gotcha. back to, you know, if you want to pinpoint a species, learn about the species and, and figure out what it wants. Not, don't go out to a spot and like, oh, I want to try to attract X and get mad because you haven't done it. It's because you might not be where they want to be. Right. Right. Well, uh, to wrap things up here, Dan, I have a couple questions um, that I, I really like to ask most of the guests. And uh, the first one being is uh, you only get to go hunting one more time. Um, <laughs> where where are you going? Uh, what are you hunting? Uh, what's it like? Who's with you? And uh, kind of describe the, the perfect conditions of uh, how you'd want your last hunt to be. <laughs> Man, that's a weighted question. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Uh, I would probably, and there's so many hunts that I want to go on that it's hard to choose. Honestly, I would probably go back up to Canada with my son and a couple close friends. And and just spend a week or two, dial in the ducks and geese, and have at it. Awesome. So Canada, then, huh? That's one place. Oh, for sure. I mean, God, I had him in Saskatchewan, you know, in in field, you know, digging layout pits, and uh, <laughs> it was, you know, it's it's a trip I will never forget. And if I could recreate it. You know, and honestly, if it was my last hunt, it would be, it would be me, my son, if my daughters pick it up, great, and a, and grandkids. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, I still like I 
you know, I'm, I'm thinking about your son digging out there and stuff and him kind of, you know, on that hunt that we were on together, uh, just Mr. Ben, Mr. Ben, I, I never get called Mr. Ben. So that was fun, uh, for me. And, uh, yeah, uh, he's a go-getter for sure. Yeah. And I, I sent you that picture of those season this year. And oh, yeah. I mean, he shot over half of my limit. It's time for him to get his own license. Yeah, because you have the mentorship. What's that called? The mentorship? Uh, yep. Yeah. Where basically he can shoot, he can add to your limit, correct? Yeah, he shoots on my bag, yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. That's cool. Yeah. So. But, yeah. Uh, what else? Do you, do you get any hunts planned for this season or, you know, any aspirations? Well, you, you know, here the past couple of years, my hunts have really been um, – actually trying to keep birds alive and putting um, GPS uh, units on them. So I've got uh, the, uh, that big pintail project starting up where I'm going to have to get some birds in my hand, and I've got some, some cranes I need to capture to put units on them. So that sort of has been my hunting, where it's not necessarily putting meat in the freezer. It's it's putting data in, in my computer to help inform decisions about these game birds. So um you know i'll make a couple trips down to where we hunted and um i'm gonna try to get over to the texas panhandle to shoot some cranes um with a buddy of mine um so nothing nothing out of this world just something to whet the appetite and and keep me going awesome awesome well you've always got a spot in uh in my blind up here in kansas so I appreciate it. I'm, 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 I'm going to have to take you up on that one year. I just need to get these, I need to get the data rolling in and then I, I can be an armchair biologist again. <laughs> perfect. Perfect. Well, Dan, uh, should we, should we call it there? Sure. Uh, yeah. Any last uh, comments you'd like for the, the listeners of the Fowl Front Waterfowl podcast? Uh, enjoy the time of field and, uh, don't ever stop waterfowling. All right. Well, I appreciate you coming on and uh, taking. I know it's uh, it's Friday, and uh, well, you're leaving on a bus or something so soon, aren't you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's just my mode of transportation home, and then I'm leaving Sunday for for crane surveys. So. All right. Well, you stay safe out there in the field, and uh, you know, keep me updated. Well, dude, you do the same. All right. Bye, Dan. All right, and as we do every week uh, at this time of the show, we're going to go ahead and talk a little bit about our partners. Um, these are great people, and you know, don't fast forward through this. This is um, important, and this is where we're going to have a lot of um, you know good updates for you um, that you know might be beneficial to yourself. So, I want to give a big shout out to Hunt Hickory Creek. Uh, Hunt Hickory Creek, uh, they just opened up their Central Kansas Lodge for waterfowl this year. And uh, Chase, their head waterfowl guy, get in here on the group and you can, you know, vet him. If you're going to spend all this money um, to, you know, get on a guided hunt, you might as well um, be able to pre-vet and get to know your guide before um, you pull the trigger on something. And you get in there into the the waterfowl podcast group, you can meet Chase and then his guides, uh, Scotty. Uh, and Cody, and then uh, even his fiance Megan, who she does a lot of the photo work and a lot of stuff around behind the scenes and uh, out there. So uh, these are great people, and you're going to really uh, be able to 
once you meet them, you're you're in the group. You're gonna be you're gonna be sold. So go ahead and uh, check out Hunt Hickory Creek uh, and book a hunt with them today. So we've also got Dive Bomb Industries, and Dive Bomb Industries has a foul front. Uh, 10% discount code, and if you haven't used that yet, I would use it before the end of this month. Um, just saying. These guys are getting us into you know, affordable, big-numbered spreads that are extremely realistic and get the job done. Not to mention they don't take up any space in your garage or the truck, and you don't have to have a big old trailer to haul them around. You know, it's It makes sense for the budget hunter that is you know, doesn't have all the time or money for all the, you know, a big old 16-foot enclosed trailer to haul around a bunch of full-bodied 3D um, uh, Canada goose decoys. or And they are even coming out with pintails and the whole nine yards, the whole gamut. So go check them out over at DieBombIndustries.com um, and their Facebook and Instagram. Uh, next, we've got the DuckTech mobile app, and the DuckTech mobile app is uh, it's pretty sweet. You can get in there, and you know you can learn from Barney Califf, who's a three-time world duck champion, uh, world duck calling champion, um, and he tells you, you know, what this specific call means, what this means, what that means, and then how to do it, and then you can actually record yourself and play it against uh, him, so that you can kind of see where you're falling short or um, you know what you need to improve upon. So go check out the DuckTech mobile app and uh, get yourself, you know, sounding right for this upcoming uh, duck season. Next, we've got Gypsum Creek Retrievers, and I just went and uh, did a hunt with Evan uh, this morning. And I tell you what, uh, that's a good dude. Um, and in a couple years, he's going to be the premier um, kennel, I think, here in, in Kansas. And if you really, you know, want to know that you're – dog or um if you want to get a good dog here in, in the future and that it's coming from a, a very respectful um and from somebody that absolutely loves your dog probably just as much as you do you need to check out gypsum creek retrievers um and not to mention the the dog work that he's doing with these things i got to um spend a morning with his flagship dog and and uh, he was just lights out. It was awesome. Uh, you know, making a 100-yard blind retrieve through the weeds, you know, on a crippled bird. It was, it was, good, to, it was good to see. So. so go ahead and check them out. They've got a pretty cool uh, – they got a lot of content coming out, actually. And, and go, so go check them out on G- Gypsum Creek Retrievers uh, on Facebook. All right, uh, next we've got Toe Tags LLC. Now, Toe Tags LLC exists to keep you legal. And honestly, um, y'all, everybody that I've hunted with this season so far, they've been, you know, pretty amazed at how, you know, quick and easy it is to just fill out this tag. And just for a couple cents and, you know, 30 seconds, you can you can be within the letter of the law and you can feel 10 times better about walking out of that field um, with a full tote of ducks or geese and uh, knowing that, uh, ain't ain't nobody can touch you when it comes to uh, any possession laws or um, you know field possession or, or transportation tagging laws. So go check them out, out at uh, Toe Tags LLC. You already bought all the boats, the ammo, the guns, the decoys. Why are you gonna go ahead and uh, try to get a ticket uh, um, for not using something that costs maybe twenty cents a hunt? So go check them out, Toe Tags LLC. 
Uh, next, we've got Duck Nuts. Now, that's D-U-K-N-U-T-Z. And uh, Duck Nuts is sweet. My wife is looking at me right now. She's shaking her head still. She she thinks it's the funny, funniest thing ever. But um, so I didn't realize how cool these things were until I went to go pick up about five or four dozen of them um, out of the – out of the Martian, all you do is you you grab plastic out of the you know to out of your bag. You grab plastic, chuck it, you know, um, stretch it, and the the weight falls down to wherever you want it. Super easy, and then you just drop it, and it's good to go. And then the same thing for pickup; it's even easier, and all just goes back in. The big money maker on these things is you can just toss them in a bag together because the weight is right up next there to the uh, to the decoy. No, nothing's getting tangled, so it's. It's nice. Um, we've also got uh, Freelance Hunt Stats. Um, FreelanceHuntStats.com is a pretty cool journal website. And it's not just a journal website. Most journal websites, you know, you put in, oh, I killed six blue-winged teal on, on this day. Um, and it was, you know, like whatever. I was with Bobby Joe or whatever. And um, But no, this thing has, you can fill it out. And then you can, like, filter the data. And you can see how you did on sunny days, how you did on windy days, how you did you know, uh, on cold days, this, that, and the other. And it makes all of your hunt logs comprehensive, which is really nice. And, um, I mean, can make you a better hunter. And that's, uh, my good buddy over at, uh, freelance duck hunting, um, Elliot, that's his site. So go on and uh, check out freelancehuntstats.com. All right, next we've got Athlon Optics and Athlon Optics. Um, I'm telling you these things, um, are worth easily two to three times what you're paying for them. Um, I, everybody that has looked through um, my binoculars that I got from them, they have been like, "Wow, how much do these cost?" And they're like, "That's you know, that's comparable to some glass that's two or three times that." And not to mention the the biggest draw, like the biggest thing about it is, is they stand behind every product that they sell, and. They have a lifetime guarantee, which is huge for a waterfowl hunter because um, we are tough and rough on our gear. So go on uh, over to athlonoptics.com and uh, order yourself uh, a pair of these uh, binoculars. I got the, the Midas um, 10x42, and they work great. Um, and we already gave away one pair. And I'm not saying, just saying, there might be another pair being given away um, in the next week or so. So stay tuned for that. Uh, and last but not least, we have SRB Field Rest. And SRB Field Rest's uh, pretty pretty cool stuff there. Um, just like with toe tags, um, why are you going to go out into the, to the field and set your expensive shotgun down in the mud? <laughs> it doesn't make sense. Um, he has all sorts of rests for your gun in, in the field. So, you know, um, he's basically solved the problem of setting your gun down in um, muddy fields, marshes, everything of, of that nature. So, so go ahead, uh, check out srbfieldrest.com or, um, check him out on Facebook and, uh, go ahead and keep your gun out of the dirt today. All right. That's all we have, um, today folks. And, uh, we will, you know, get back into the, to the uh, meat of this and we will see you, uh, next week. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Foul Front Waterfowl Podcast. Please come join us on our Facebook group, the Foul Front Waterfowl Podcast group, where you can connect with a good group of hunters because we're all in this together. 
we need to act like it so that hopefully our great great grandkids will be hunting ducks over our favorite public lands uh, we also ask that you go ahead and give us a written review on iTunes and give us five stars if you think we deserve it and we really do want to hear back from you uh, so that we can give you the best possible content and if you get in on that Facebook group you can get in there and you can ask questions and you can tell us what you want to hear next or you can tell us uh, what you don't like and we'll be sure to tailor things to our listeners so all right stay safe out there and we will see you next week Hey, you ever been sitting in front of your TV just wondering why you can't catch the latest episode of The Foul Front right there in your living room so you can press all your guests and family with your fine taste and podcast listening? Me neither. But hey, as a part of the Waypoint Outdoor Collective, you can now find The Foul Front and some other great podcasts on your Apple TV, your Roku, your Amazon Fire Stick, Smart TV, even your gaming console just by downloading the Waypoint app. And heck, while you're there, they got over 2,500 hunting and fishing shows on demand. Go download the Waypoint app today. A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6-8 Western. Oh, I'll be over there, baby. Right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. On Mondays, head offshore with Captain Scott Walker and Steve Roger for breathtaking deep-sea adventures. Coming to me, coming to me, coming to me. Double. He's jumping, he's jumping, he's jumping. Oh! oh. Look at that belly. Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue. Brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern. Tell a few fish stories along the way. On Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.